morning. Uh, it was the first time that uh, Lindsay's had to work on a Sunday, and so I had to get all three girls to church all by myself. And my youngest daughter, Audrey, woke up at 9 o'clock, and I'm just going to say that's the end of my sermon about the power of prayer, because clearly it worked where she did not wake up at 6 o'clock this morning. Otherwise, this might be a completely different sermon. Uh, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we started the series a couple weeks ago, and the basic idea of Prayer 101 is that prayer isn't so much about us getting our way. It's not about getting our daughter to always sleep until 9 o'clock in the morning like you want her to. It's not always about you getting to manipulate God, though that might be part of it. But the real heart of what we're trying to communicate with prayer is just like an instrument needs to be tuned. Prayer is a tuning device for us. It shapes our will. It shapes who we are. It shapes the way that we see and perceive and interact with the world. It shapes the way that we understand the goodness of God, and it shapes the way that we experience it. And so that's our prayer, that God would tune our heart. So let's pray one more time. God, we pray that you would do your tuning work inside of us, that you would shape and form us to be people who look more like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want you to imagine you're with your significant other, your roommate, or whoever you live with, and you're standing outside your abode. You're standing out there, and you see some friends on their bike drive by. And so you wave to them, and they stop. And so you start talking with your wannabe Lance Armstrong friends outside of your house. And you're talking to the few of them. There's three or four of them all in the little herd of people on their bikes with their spandex, with their helmets on, and their glasses. And you're talking to them. So there's you, your roommate, your wife, your significant other, whoever, and about three or four of these cyclists. And then as you're talking to this group of people, you see someone in a car driving by. They honk, you wave, and they stop. You see the red lights, they back up, and they start talking to you. They get out of their car. And then another car. And so all of a sudden, you have a dozen people in your front yard. And then your significant other says, hey, won't y'all come inside? Let's have a good time. We can order some food, and we'll have a little gathering. And you start to freak out because your house is a wreck. And so you go in first and you start looking at the disarray in your house. You start to wonder where that smell is that you don't know where it's from, but you've sickly gotten used to it. You start trying to cover that up. You light candles. You throw all the dirty clothes in the bedroom door. You shut it. You try to get all the dirty dishes in the sink so they can't see it. You try to find something for your, your friends to eat and drink and you're freaking out. And then you look from the kitchen where you are frantically trying to pull everything together. And there is your significant other sitting on the couch, just talking to your friends. What do you do? What do you do in that moment? You do. Hey, come here. I've got a question for you. Where do you want me to bury your dead body? That's what you're thinking. Question, who is the right one? Who is the wrong one in this situation? You, the person who is frantically putting everything together, or your friend, your significant other, your spouse, who's just sitting there having a good old time talking to your unexpected guest. You're the good one, right? Who's going to say anything other than that? That's the right answer, or so we think. There's a story in Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha, and this is a situation that's broken down for them. And the person who has the wrong answer is Jesus. And so maybe we have the wrong answer, actually, if that's the case. So Luke chapter 10, let's read it now, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, a position of a disciple. She sat at his feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations 
that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So there's Martha frantically throwing all the throw pillows where they go. She's frantically trying to get ice and drinks and appetizers. She's frantically trying to be hospitable, to be a good host, to make sure the house looks presentable and everyone is having a good time. And she's frustrated because Mary, her sister, is doing none of it. So she goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my sister to do the right thing. And she says, and he, she is told, there are many things to be done. Actually, there's only really one. And your sister, she's chosen the right thing to do. She has chosen what is better. If you're going to ask anyone other than Jesus, who's the right one? They're not going to pick Mary. They're going to pick Martha. But Jesus has some different sort of wisdom he's tapping into. That's weird. Question. Anyone in here make checklists for their to-do list for the day? Anyone make checklists? Yes, yes, yes. Anyone here use a whiteboard by any chance? Anyone know? No, no, no. I, when you have a checklist, do you check things off or do you erase them? You check them off because it feels good to see a checklist completed, right? There's that sense of accomplishment, which you love. I make checklists every day. Literally on Sunday, Saturdays, I make checklists. And I love to just go put a mark by it and just stare at the check mark. It's like, yes, I am dominating. I love it. And this Genesis 1 stuff. In the beginning, God said to have dominion over the earth. You were co-creators. It is something that is hardwired into us to put the earth into subjection, to lead, to oversee. That's part of this God-ordained stuff that has been hardwired into our DNA. And if we didn't, can you imagine what the world would look like? Think about it. If you didn't have that sense of, I want to accomplish something, what would have become of our world? If cavemen and women many years ago decided, you know what? I'm cool. I'm just going to hang out here. We're not going to create civilization. We're not going to progress with humanity. What would become of the world? How terrible of a world would it be that we would have been given? We would be people who said, I'm going to town. And when we said, I'm going to town, we would be referring to places like Aubrey and Crum. How terrible would that be? Imagine... If Al Gore decided, I'm not going to build the internet. How bad of a world would that be? What would we do with our phones? Call people? Ah, imagine if Mr. Chipotle didn't make his restaurant and there were no Chipotles. Where would I eat? I would eat nowhere. We have this thing hardwired in us to accomplish and it's a beautiful thing. And that's why if everyone looks at Mary and Martha, we're going to say, Martha's doing the right thing, but Jesus said, no, there is something better. And the way sin always works is it takes something that's good and distorts it just a little bit. It takes something that's beautiful and sullies it and makes it hideous. What Martha did was not the worst thing. It wasn't bad. It was good. But it wasn't better. That's why Jesus looked at her sister and said, she has done what is better. The logic of Martha makes sense, but the wisdom of Mary is what we need. 
So I was uh, talking a few months ago, or a couple uh, weeks ago, uh, to a pastor, and I was really just crowdsourcing this series on prayer. And uh, this is a pastor who has this prayer school in which people from all over the country go to Missouri, or Missouri, I don't know why people say Missouri, but they do, to go to Missouri to hear this guy talk about prayer. And I was talking to him about where this came from, this desire to have this prayer school. And he said, years ago, he and his elders started to realize that he was getting good at prayer. He was starting to get good at prayer, and so he wanted, first of all, his elders asked him to teach them how to pray. And so this pastor named Brian started to teach uh, the elders at his church how to pray. And then people from his church started to get interested in it. So they started having a class, a prayer school, that people from his church would go to on a Wednesday night or something like that. And they would go to that over a course of a semester or something. And then people from around the country said, hey, Brian, you're really good at prayer. We want to come learn from you how to pray. And so people started to drive in and fly into Missouri for these schools that he put on on the weekend. So I talked to him about that, and he said, I, I did this because I started to feel like I was getting better at prayer. Well, at the end of the conversation, he says, when you pray, you should never judge how successful your prayer is. When you pray, you shouldn't judge, was that good or bad? It was just the wrong question to ask. Which seems kind of contradictory, because just at the beginning of the conversation, he was saying, I started this prayer school because I started to get good at prayer. And people started to recognize I'm getting good at prayer, which seems like he's making a value judgment about prayer. But then at the end, he says, when it comes to individual prayer sessions, don't judge if it's good or bad, which seems like a contradiction. But I don't think that it is at all. You see, if you judge if you're praying every day, or if your goal is I'm going to pray for five or ten minutes for five days a week. If that's your goal, you can judge. Did, did that happen? Yes or no? That's an easy thing to evaluate, right or wrong. But if you go into your time of prayer, and this is, I think, what Brian was trying to argue, and you say, I'm going to pray, and it's going to be judged based on whether I find the new direction for my work, if I'm going to find the next chapter in my career, if I'm going to find three quick steps to fix my marriage or two quick ideas to make my kids behave, you're going about prayer the wrong way. Because the goal of prayer, ultimately, is not to be a part of something that you can evaluate, is this good or bad? Uh, there's a, a book called The Armchair Mystic. It's a really interesting book. And in this book, uh, the author's guy named Thibodeau, he argues that the first stage of prayer is talking at God. Talking at God. And that's a, a, an entryway into the way of prayer. And if this is where you're beginning your prayer journey, it's normal. That's where you're supposed to start, where you say, God, I want this and this and this, and you're talking at God. God, I'm upset about this. Would you fix this? God, help me with this. It's talking at God. That's the beginning of prayer. And it's a beautiful thing to start with. But he says the goal of prayer, this is his fourth stage, is what he calls wasting time with God. The goal of prayer is to go from thinking you go into it wanting to accomplish, to fix something, to check something off your list. And the goal is to get to the end where you can just waste time with God. There is no sense of accomplishment. It's just being in God's presence. Uh, let me read you a, a section from the book in which Thibodeau writes about this. In the Martha state, I work for God, but it's still my work that is at the center of my life. Everything is different for the saint, for Mary. For her, actions are the offspring of God's lordship in her life. They are God's actions being done through her. The project of my life then is to allow God to move me from the Martha state 
to the Mary state, from a life centered on good actions to a life centered on surrendering to the true king who does good things within and through me. This is where contemplative prayer enters in. When I pray, my goal is to come as close as I can to what Mary did on that day Jesus dropped by for a visit. I sit in stillness with nothing. What he's trying to argue for is at the beginning of life, at the beginning of our prayer life, it's we're talking at God. We want to accomplish something. But the goal is to move from being a Martha in prayer to being a Mary who can just waste time and be present with God. Because as good as your accomplishments are, and they all have significance and value, God has entrusted you to have dominion over the world. And what you do, it matters. It really does. No matter if you are fixing cars or you're running a school, whatever you do, you are living out this thing that God intends for you to do by leading the world, by putting into dominion, to making things of significance. It matters. But as important as your accomplishments are, what God wants from you is not your accomplishments. What God wants is your attention. As great as your accomplishments are, and you say, God, I'm doing this for you. I'm making this. I'm building this. I'm being this kind of a good parent. I'm being this kind of good employee. I'm being this good neighbor. Those are good things. But God wants your attention more than your accomplishments. And that's why God said in the person of Jesus to Martha, your sister has chosen what is better. He wants us to move from the logic of Martha to the wisdom of Mary. Uh, Speaking of Martha, since you brought him up, Karcher, uh, Martha Vineyard is a place up in the Northeast. That that was my attempt to make a smooth transition and just... I feel really good about it on paper. Um, Doesn't sound so good now. Martha's Vineyard, it's 1999, and John F. Kennedy Jr. gets on his Piper Saratoga personal plane. He gets in his jet with a plane with his sister-in-law, his wife and her sister-in-law. And they're leaving Martha's Vineyard, and they're flying at night. And it's been a little bit of uh, bad weather this July. And so he's flying, and he's a somewhat inexperienced pilot. And so he's really fi- flying by the lights he sees, and he's, he's hugging real close to the coastline. And as he's flying uh, down the coastline of Connecticut, he makes a turn and goes out to sea. And then he turns back in, and then he elevates, decreases, speeds up, slows down, and then just tragically miles from his destination, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife and his sister-in-law come to a crashing stop as they they crash the plane, passed away. Now, uh, people who are knowledgeable about this stuff have tried to explain what happened, and they say that he was a somewhat inexperienced pilot, and he was trying to fly by the lights, but as he got away from the coast, he lost that, and he couldn't use his instruments properly. And they say what happened was his wings uh, were not level. And when you're flying and your wings aren't level, you lose lift. And so what happens is, as that happens, the bank that you create by your, your wings not being level starts to increase speed. And it starts to spin faster and faster. It's called a graveyard spiral. And the way that the G-forces work is that you don't even feel the pressure against you. When you're in this death, uh, this graveyard spiral, you don't even feel what's happening to you until you crash into the ground, which is a terrible story. Uh, But it's a very fitting metaphor 
for what happens to us when we get in this Martha way of life. You see, here's the the thing. God wants us to choose to be like Mary, to to sit, to be present, to be still. God wants that for us, but we need it. Because often we get stuck in these graveyard spirals in which we are so fixated on accomplishing, getting things done. And it's just as true if you aren't accomplishing. It's easy to think, well, I'm doing well or I'm failing, and so it's not me, so I need to work harder. But the lure of accomplishment is just as powerful as the absence or the presence of it. It's all the same. We get in these death, this graveyard spiral, and we don't even feel it until we come crashing down. And often we don't sense it until we have a breakdown or things fall apart at home or at work or in some relationship, and we don't even know it. And the whole time we are missing the presence of God. Uh, The psalmist says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And I think the wisdom of that psalm is also found if you turn it into a negative. If you are not still, you do not know God. If you want to be still, then you can know God. But if you are not still, you live in this spiral in which you are unaware of God all around you until things come crashing down. God wants for you to be still and to engage in his presence. But guess what? You and I need it. You need to be able to press pause. Probably seven or eight years ago, Lindsay Lindsay and I are still living in Florida, and we come home one Wednesday evening from church, and Lindsay said, hey, I want to stop at Target, which was a really weird thing for her to say since she doesn't say that every day. Um, And I said, I want to get home. There's a a game I want to watch on TV, so you go ahead. We have two separate cars, so you go to Target. I'll go home. I'm going to watch the game. She said, okay, she's a wonderful wife. And so I get home early. I'm watching the game. She comes home a little bit later with her bags full of groceries, and she's walking in the door, and I say, hey, baby girl, do you need a help with the groceries? And she looks at me, and she says, oh, but I knew there was a game you cared about. You just watch the game. I'll get the groceries. And I say, no, 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 no. Let me help you. And she says, no, you don't have to, Luke. And I say, baby, let me help you. And she says, Luke, but I know you care so much about the game. And I say, baby girl, there are thousands of games that I care about, but there's only one girl I care about as much as I care about you. And she says, oh, so what you're saying is the cable guy came today and installed the DVR. And I said, yes, that is true. (laughs) That is true. It's nice to be able to pause things and put it on hold. It's great to be able to do that because it's good for the soul. We all need to be able to pause. And it's great that God wants that from us. And part of the reason he wants that for us is because he knows how much we need it. Because otherwise we get in this graveyard spiral and things fall out of control. Because you can't know God if you don't know how to say no. You can't know God unless you know how to say no. Mary was able to say no to things. Martha wasn't. And this inability to say no prevents us from living in the presence of God. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser Uh, writes this about our obsession with being busy. He writes, most of us are quite like Mother Teresa in that we want to will God. The problem is we will everything else as well. We want to have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch TV, to read, talk to friends, and go out. What Rollheiser is saying is that We all want 
to be in the presence of God. We all want to be still and know that he is God, but we also want a thousand other things that we all want to do. And unless you're able to say no, you can't know the presence of God. Here's the, here's the real truth. The question is not if you are going to fail in life. It's not if you're going to fail in life. The question is, what are you going to fail at? Because as the, uh, some of the spiritual greats used to say, that every choice is a renunciation. And everything you say yes to, it means you're saying no to something else. And so the question isn't, I don't want to fail. The question is, what are you going to fail at? Think of it this way. If you decide that you want to run a marathon, if you decide, I want to go run 26.2 or 13.1 or 5.65 or whatever the math is on that. I know you all like to correct me on things, so you can go do that with your calculators afterwards. If you want to run a marathon and that's your goal, you want to go run your 26.2 and you run it. Let's say you run it in a great time. You run a sub four hour marathon. That's great. That's really impressive. But if the next day you decide after training and preparing and getting ready to run a sub four hour marathon that you want to go do a strongman competition, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to fail. If you've trained yourself to run 26.2 miles, you're not going to be able to go throw a keg over a high bar and you're not going to be able to pick up an atlas stone because you choose to succeed in one. You're going to fail in the other. Then again, if you have a strong man try to run even a 13.1 or a 5.65 or a 1.0, they might actually die. Seriously, because if you're going to succeed at something, it means you will fail at something else. Every choice is a renunciation. If you're going to be good at writing with your right hand, you're probably going to stink at your left hand. If you're going to be good at being married, it means you're going to be bad at dating. If you're going to binge watch a show, it means you're not going to sleep. Every choice is a renunciation. So the question for us is, do we choose the right things to fail at? Mary chose the right things to fail at. Her home was never going to get in a magazine. Never going to happen. Martha failed because she failed at the wrong thing. She was too obsessed with the little things that she missed what was better. And so there is gospel in knowing that unless you know how to say no, you can't know God. Because for some of us, we are people pleasers. And the last thing we ever want to do is disappoint someone. Oh, I can't disappoint them at work. I can't disappoint my mom. I can't disappoint my neighbors. I can't disappoint people. And so you go around living like a chicken with their head cut off because you don't want to disappoint anyone. And you are in this graveyard spiral because you can't be still and know that he is God. The gospel of this is to say, it's okay. You're going to disappoint people. You might not know it, but you're disappointing someone. Just don't disappoint God. Be a failure at the right things. Say no to the right things. Some of us have this thing called the, uh, the fear of missing out. There's an abbreviation called FOMO because someone wanted to make everyone uncomfortable. And so they created that acronym. And so it leads to stuff like this. Here's a, a picture of some cartoons of people on a beach. Can you get that for me, Kevin? Okay. <laughs> Look at this cartoon. How great is it? They have a tan line from holding their phone over their chest. Isn't that awesome? That's the fear of missing out. You might be on a beautiful beach, but you don't want to take your eyes off your phone. Let's go to the next one. And so we look at our phones like this. We think in our mind that we are the master of our phone saying, fetch my emails, navigate to John's house, show me the news, send this photo to Lynn. And the phone is saying, yes, master. But in reality, it's the other way around. Charge me. Give me some Wi-Fi. Read this email, answer this call, check into the restaurant, and we are bowing down to our phones because we end up doing the very same thing as that. 
We get so obsessed without missing out on something that we are wasting our time staring at a tiny little four-inch screen. Or if you're one of those weird people with a seven-inch phone, I'm not judging you, but it's weird. And you're staring at the phone no matter how big the screen is. You are wasting time. Let me encourage you to waste time not with your phone, but with God. You will miss something. You will fail at something. Just fail at the right thing. You can't know God unless you know how to say no. And that's what Mary did. And that's what Martha failed at. Be the wise sister and choose the right thing to fail at. What I want you to do now is I want you to everyone to stand up while Wags makes his way up front. And let me pray a prayer of blessing over you as you stand and we continue in worship. God, may we have the wisdom to fail at the right things. May we know that we are valued enough that we don't need to seek our value in relationships or accomplishing things. May we know that we are loved enough by you so that we don't go around with this abscess of love in which we're constantly trying to pull that from things and people and objects which can never deliver the love that you have for us. May we have the wisdom to choose to fail at the right things because you are a God who loves for his children to pay attention to him. And that is enough for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.